I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It's time to get green. Doug Oster and Jessica Walliser are in the house. All natural, no pesticides, no artificial ingredients. The Organic Gardeners. News Radio 1020, KDKA. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Weekend Magazine underway. And Jessica Wallace, who is here, Doug is on vacation. Lots of stuff to get to, including a special author who will be joining us to talk gardening right after the news update at the bottom of the hour. Jessica and I, though, will remind everyone, if you want to call in and talk gardening, you can call us at 866-391-1020 or dollarbankinstantaccesskdk.com. Tenth caller right now. We always like to uh, make it interesting to begin the show by giving you a chance to win a great gift certificate from the wonderful Sorgal family out there in Wexford, Wexford, big supporters of this program, and we are grateful for that. 412-922-1020. But on a serious note, Irma is literally, as you heard moments ago, now touching Florida and touching in very, very big, in a big way. We're looking at a Category 4 storm, and that right now has got winds of 130 miles an hour. They're looking for millions to be out of power. Obviously, lots of folks are stranded. Brock Long, who happens to be the director of FEMA, has said if you're still in the Florida Keys, you're on your own. It's too late to drive out of there. Uh, cities like Marco, uh, areas like Marco Island and Naples, Florida being affected. We heard earlier today that St. Martin's, Florida is now battening down the hatches, getting ready for another Category 4 storm that has been brewing in the Atlantic, and that is Jose. So the weather has wreaked havoc, no doubt about it. But for all of the volunteers, even our good friends from uh, Davy Tree have sent 500 employees down there to do some work as well. And you know, you hear spots all of the time on this great radio station from the folks at UPMC and the Allegheny Health Network and others. And let me salute all of those who are in healthcare as well. Volunteers many of them, even from this region, who have gone down there and taken it upon themselves to be there in case of need. So a lot of people stepping up to help out in what is going to be a very difficult time. And right now, as this story develops, and we'll continue to follow it with CBS Radio News throughout the day, it is not going to be good, including, I just mentioned, Naples. And Jessica has a connection there, and that's where she would like to begin today's program. Good morning. I do. Good morning. This is horticulturist Jessica Wallace. Or yeah, Rob and I were talking before the show uh, about how terrible this is going to be. I Heard on the news last night that they were uh, said uh, three to six million people out of power. Uh, and and we're not just talking about what we're going to see on the news, which will be probably pretty intense here for the next week or so. But, I mean, these people could be out of power for weeks, if not months. I mean, and and all the things that happen as a result of not having power either, you know, with health care and all that kind of stuff as well. It's, it's very, very sad. But uh, my parents live uh, in the wintertime. They live down in Florida. They're snowbirds. And they uh, have a condo in Naples. And, of course, that's right uh, sort of in the strike zone of Irma here. And uh, having spent many, many weeks down there uh, visiting with them, and uh, we always go down there over winter break as well with our family. And I just uh, can't help also, in addition to thinking about all the people there, also thinking about, you know, the the animals at the Naples Zoo and uh, the great work that they've done at the Naples Botanic Garden. I've literally watched the Naples Botanic Garden being built from the ground up. Uh, We were there the very first year they opened, and we go every single year to see the changes over the past 10 or 12 years that the place has been open. 
Uh, and I think, you know, all that hard work from all those people could just be gone. Um, obviously, in addition to the, the terrible damage, they're going to see to houses and other structures down there as well. So uh, our hearts go out to everybody down in Florida. And I hope that everybody stays safe and is safe and was smart and got out uh, and evacuated. And I think, too, you know, some of the roads down there, they say one way in, one way out. And that is absolutely true. And with all the traffic that everybody was seeing trying to evacuate, um, I know a lot of people faced so much traffic and they got worried about running out of gas that they turned around and went back home. And that that's really scary to me. So if you're down there and you're listening, be safe. I don't know why you're listening. If you're in Florida and, and listening online right now, you, you should be doing other things. But uh, it, it's it's a very terrible thing. And, and um, you know, it's hard to think about that up here in Pennsylvania because we don't face those winds and quite that amount of rain and storm surge that they're going to see down there. So. I, saw, I saw a story yesterday following this uh, story that's just been preoccupying all of our minds in the media pretty much 24-7 that even in Pennsylvania starting to look at maybe some preparedness just in case because, you know, you just never know. But one of the things that we always talk about, that food source, and yeah, when you never know, and if some of these people actually do have gardens and they're kind of hunkered down and they have nowhere to go and we know with power and grocery stores and, you know, as far as freezers and a lot of stuff basically spoiling and not being good and doors being shut down. And obviously those who are doing some things that they shouldn't be doing, like looting, very scary to even leave your, leave your house. So if you have some of that stuff laying around your house and if you have to stay put, it might be a good thing that you were a gardener. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that your garden outside would fare very well through a storm like this. I think it would probably be between the winds and the flooding. Uh, the, the plants wouldn't survive so well. But hopefully, you know, you were into canning or preserving that you have enough stores uh, set aside. But uh, and speaking of weather, um, you know, we're, we're obviously this does not even compare to what's happening down in, in Florida. But uh, we had a lightning strike on our property this week, which uh, I wouldn't even remember what night it was. Maybe Wednesday night we had a big storm roll through. Through. And uh, I was sitting in the living room and we have sort of glass doors in the back of the house. And I was sitting in the living room and it was maybe about nine o'clock at night and just this really loud crack of lightning and th- a really loud crack of thunder. And I saw the lightning bolt come right down and I saw this flash of orange fire, orange flames. And I knew right away that something in our backyard had been hit by lightning. And thankfully, it wasn't our house. But we have a, our, our yard backyard is surrounded by a fence. And then there's our woods up back behind that. And I went out the next morning to take a look at what had happened. And we have a big cherry tree back there, a big wild cherry tree that had gotten struck by lightning. And uh, I had never seen that happen before. I had seen trees that were struck by lightning, but not to this extent. The entire tree, which is probably, I would say, maybe 50 feet tall, yeah, probably 50 feet, split right down the middle. The top fell off of the tree and landed on our fence, and the whole tree is split from top all the way down to where it meets the soil. Cracked open, and the insides just kind of burst out of the tree. Uh, I don't imagine the tree is going to survive. I would be absolutely amazed if it would have <laughs> survived this. Like Time will tell. But the destructive nature uh, of nature is absolutely incredible. And there we are just, you know, you know, in our little house and get struck by lightning. I'm just grateful it didn't strike the house. Power. That would have been a whole different story. Power of Mother Nature. Okay. How about it? We're going to take a break. We'll come back and we'll get right to your phone calls. If you have any questions for Jessica, please give us a call. But tell the folks as we go to break who our guests will be. Yes. Joining us at uh, 730 after the news break is Kylie Baumley. She's the author of The Monarch, Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. And we're going to talk about my favorite subject, bugs. Doug and Jessica teach you how to keep it green. The Organic Gardeners. 
News Radio 1020 KDKA. All right. Hey, congratulations to Rita from Wexford, winner of that gift certificate from Sorgo. She won't have far to go. 866-391-1020, dollar bank, instant access, kdk.com. So right off that Wexford exit, you will be able to visit Sorgo's where they're open today. Barbara, up first for Jessica Walliser. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Aren't we lucky to live in this area? It's true, and I think, too, as soon as the, the fall arrives here, we're going to start to see these gorgeous leaves change and all the pretty color. Yep, we are lucky. Yes, indeed. Um, but, Jessica, I have to say, you mentioned monarch. I haven't seen monarchs for two or three years. I've seen one last week and this week, and I'm so excited. And it's on, you mentioned about a Mexican sunflower, mm-hmm. and I planted them this year, and they are gorgeous, and that's where I saw them. And I, I you'd swear, you gave me a million dollars. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> really and truly, I mean, it's just wonderful to see it come back. Plus, good. I bees now this year, which I haven't, but that's not why I called you. I just, the good with the bad, and the good was best, our first. Um, this year, and I think I had a little bit of it last year, but it was right at the end, and I really didn't know what it was, but I think I know what it was, was mildew, downy mildew on my basil. Mm-hmm. It has that, it looks like a sort of a dusty, yep. dirty color on the back. Yep. Oh, uh, I was just devastated because it, it killed it all. Yeah. 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 What what can I do next year? Yeah, this is a <laughs> this is a, an issue that we're all facing. So let's talk about that basil downy mildew first. So this is um, a pathogen that is becoming more and more prevalent here in the United States. It is spread by seed. So uh, unlike a lot of fungal organisms, it can go from mm-hmm. mother to child plant uh, via the seeds. It is spread via wind. It is spread on your clothing uh, as you move about the garden. So it really moves around um, quite well. And this was obviously the perfect storm for it this year with the wet season that we had. Um, As you described, sort of that sooty um, black splotches on the undersides of the leaves are the first evidence of it. And it will totally wipe out a plant. Um, And here's the thing. So number one, I would say if you want to prevent it next year, number one would be to buy your seed only from a reputable source that has them certified uh, free of the pathogen. How how would I find that? That is a very good question. (laughs) And you're going to have to do your research on that. You're going to have to, um, as you read and peruse seed catalogs and things, uh, look for indications of that, that it has been tested uh, and it's, you know, a fungal free stock. Uh, if they don't say that on there, you can call the company and speak to them about it. I would also hedge your bets and grow several different varieties. Um, there are There is some resistance to basil downy mildew being bred into some varieties. I don't know that they're on the market yet, but they will be over the coming years. Um, I know in my garden, my sweet basil got it. Sweet basil is one of the most, uh, you know, uh, susceptible varieties. So I always grow some Thai basil, some lemon basil. The flavor isn't quite the same, obviously, but Mm -hmm. at least that way I'm hedging my bets. Um, And to grow even just in that sweet basil, don't just grow one variety of it. Grow four, five, six different varieties of sweet basil so that if one is more susceptible than another, you still have uh, some available to you. Um, You can also use preventative fungal sprays, fungicidal sprays. So we love the product Serenade. You've heard us talk about it many times before. It Uh, it is a biofungicide. The deal with it, though, is it's primarily a preventative. So if we have a wet spring, you have to do it before the fungal pathogen strikes upper and lower leaf surfaces. And obviously, you want to follow those label instructions very carefully. 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm hoping I got my fingers crossed because I can't live without basil. I know, right? I feel exactly the same way, and uh, it is an extremely... Uh, you know, tenacious pathogen that really does spread very quickly. But I encourage you to stick around for the 730, uh, after the 730 news, we're going to have Kylie Baumley, who is a monarch expert and author of the book, The Monarch. Uh, She's going to be talking to us about uh, what we're seeing happen with the the monarch migration that's beginning to take place right now, why we have seen such a massive decline in their numbers, and maybe what we gardeners can also do to help encourage this great insect as well. So make sure that you stick around. Tenacious pathogens. A tenacious, that would, that would be a good name for a book now, wouldn't it? Tenacious You're just showing pathogens. off that Penn State education. <laughs> All right, listen, here, I don't know. We even... want to talk about the football. <laughs> I know. We want to talk about, about that. your coach saying it's like we played Akron? I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I'm not. I'm, listen, I was in the agriculture department. We tried to really stay separate from the football. It was all about producing so, a grass field as opposed to who winning. Exactly. Winning that's field. right. We focused on the turf there development. Go. Let's right. go to Marlene in Greensburg. Hey, Marlene, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Um, I have uh, a question. I have uh, knock, put up knockoff roses mm-hmm. in my yard. And uh, I know that your roses should be cut like in the spring, like trimmed down, mm-hmm. but I wasn't able to get them trimmed down soon enough because of our early, early spring and the changes in the weather and everything, being cold and then warm. Um, and now my roses are like almost five foot tall. Okay. And I was wondering, could I cut them down now and leave them go for the spring? Um, or when should I cut them down? How low can I cut them? Should I cut them down to the ground, like about maybe 12 inches or, um, uh, you know? (laughs) Okay. Yep. So what your next steps are with those. So uh, yes, you are absolutely correct in saying that the ideal time to prune those roses, uh, not just knockouts, but all roses is actually in the spring. For many, many years, we were taught that, you know, you cut them down in the fall and that's going to be better for the plant. But actually, a lot of research has shown that it's better to wait until spring. And then you basically, it doesn't die back as far. Uh, when you don't get to prune it at all, though, this is what happens, right? You get this sort of gangly, long, tall, awkward uh, rose branches that sort of gobble up the area that they're planted in. So what I would encourage you to do is actually hold off a little bit to do that pruning and wait until we get uh, maybe we're close to frost or maybe one or two uh, light frost and then do your pruning. If you prune now, what may happen is if we get another warm spell, you're going to be encouraging some new growth to develop. And that new growth will be really, really susceptible to frost. And you're going to end up knocking the plant back farther. Uh, It's not going to, you know, uh, you're not going to come back in the spring with quite so much vigor. So either wait until we have a frost or two or wait till close to that time to do any pruning that you need to do. Um, The other option for you, which is what I would recommend even more, is to, if they're not in your way, uh, is to just let those plants go and leave them go all winter long and then do your spr- uh, pruning in late March or early April as you should do. And you can cut them back pretty far at that time. You can go all the way back if you want to, back to about a foot or so. Um, you probably don't need to go back that far, but you can go back that far if you want to without having any ill effects on the plant. Okay, but if I do them like now before the spring... Um Wait and wait till like maybe a first or second frost. Could I go down as low as like uh, 
I wouldn't. I wouldn't because what happens is if you go all the way down to a foot this fall and we have a really harsh winter, that plant's going to be knocked back even further. So you're really going to be starting from far back. So I would say if you decide to do the pruning around the time that we get our first frost, maybe go back to two feet so that you have a little bit of wiggle room there as to how far the plants are going to die back over the winter. I know because I have them in the front of my house Mm -hmm. and I have a small deck and (laughs) it's... I don't have I don't have any trouble with anybody seeing like if I'm sitting on my deck. But <laughs> they're that high. It's like a privacy hedge for you, right? right Which a lot of people right. actually want, so they they wouldn't they would think that was great, you know, to have that little bit of privacy. But um, I wouldn't go quite so far if you're going to prune in the fall because you are going to have to prune again in the spring, I'm sure, because you will have some winter dieback uh, that okay. occurs. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Just a couple minutes before the break. What are you doing in the Tribune Review of late? Oh, talking about all kinds of good stuff. We know, talk about late season pests in the garden, some chores that you can be taking on this time of year to sort of uh, help see your garden through the winter and obviously enjoy the, the remaining few uh, weeks that we have here of the season. I can't believe how cold it got so quickly or cool it got so quickly. It's a little bit ridiculous uh, as far as I'm concerned that it was 47 degrees when I got in my car this morning. So Talk to me about canning because I mentioned that Janoski's has their tomatoes, peaches, and of course peppers ready for canning. So what's the whole process behind canning? How's that whole thing work? Well, it's it's pretty interesting. It's something that's really intimidating to a lot of people nowadays because we didn't grow up seeing it. It sort of skipped a generation, right? So right. our grandparents did a lot of canning. I remember seeing my Nana with the shelves of the canned peaches and canned dilly beans and things on her shelf in the basement. My mom did a little bit of it, but um, you know, most people are, I think my mom was an anomaly. She There weren't many people in that time that, that did it. Uh, and now it's coming back again. But it's really intimidating to a lot of people, and it shouldn't be. If you go and take a class or two at the, I know the Penn State Cooperative Extension offers them, uh, and places like Sorgal sometimes will offer canning classes as well. If you go and you learn from a master canner, they can teach you all the tricks that you need to know and talk about the safety issues with it. Uh, the USDA obviously also has lots of guidelines up uh, that you can read on their website. And then there's books like the Ball Book of Preserving, the blue, Big Blue Book of Preserving, I think it's called, uh, where there's recipes, there's, um, you know, safety uh, issues and articles in there that talk about, you know, how to prepare the jars, how to properly, you know, when you need a pressure canner versus when you need a hot water bath. So there's just different ways, um, ways to do it, but it's really important that you follow uh, all of those regulations with it, just just for safety purposes, but it doesn't mean it should be, it's intimidating. I mean, you follow safety when you prepare chicken, right? You wash the cutting board, right. you don't have it near raw vegetables. It's the same thing with canning. You just have to be thoughtful when you do that process. All right, ladies and gentlemen, she is Jessica Wallacher. Doug is on vacation. She's from TribLive.com, the Tribune Review, great columnist and author. And speaking of authors, quickly, we have coming up. Yes, after the 7.30 news break, we have a good friend of mine, Kylie Baumley. She's going to be coming on talking about uh, the monarch and say, our most loved butterfly. 866-391-1020. Dollar Bank Instant Access at KDK.com. Reaping the harvest. All of your leftover produce recipes. Share them with us next hour on the Coons Cooking Hour right here on your Sunday morning weekend magazine on News Radio 1020. KDK. Good morning, everybody. Doug and Jessica teach you how to keep it green. The Organic Gardeners. News Radio 1020, KDKA. Hey, why don't you be the 10th caller right now at 412-922-1020, and we'll give you a $25 gift certificate to Janoski's Kylie Bombly. Coming up right now, author extraordinaire talking about an amazing, well, thing that Jessica likes to talk about. 
beautiful bugs because they are so important to who we all are, especially those of us who love gardening. So once again, Jessica Wallace and more of the Organic Gardeners on KDKA. Well, we would like to welcome to the show this week Kylie Baumley. She's a good friend of mine and author of an incredible book called The Monarch, Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. And those of you listening, if you're gardeners, I know that you love monarch butterflies as much as I do. And Kylie's here today to talk to us about this amazing butterfly, its life cycle, the perils that it's facing right now, and what we gardeners can do to help this amazing butterfly as well. So Kylie, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Jessica. I'm glad to be here. I always like talking monarchs, you know. <laughs> I know you do. You you and I, uh, we sort of have a little, um, our own little hashtag on Twitter where we, we hashtag bug nerd. Uh, bug yeah. nerd, yeah. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> both of us are definitely bug lovers and bug nerds. So I want to talk to you first uh, about an interesting fact that you have on the, on the back of your uh, book here that I think is a, a really critical bit of information for people to know. Now, we gardeners who've been gardening for you know, decades, no, we have seen ourselves the decline in the population of monarch butterflies. But not long ago, monarchs numbered in the billions. But it, over the last 20 years, their population has dropped by 90%. Um, that is absolutely crazy. Can you talk about some of the reasons why this population decline has happened? Well, there are several different reasons, but the main one, uh, and, and this is debatable among some scientists, you know, there's always a little drama in, in that world. But um, the the thing that we're seeing is that their habitat has disappeared. Um, it's still there. It's just greatly reduced with the use of herbicides and pesticides. And, you know, we used to see milkweed, the only plant that they used for raising their, their young, laying eggs, and, and the only plant that the caterpillars eat. We used to see that in the farm fields, and now it's not there anymore. We've just decimated it out of the field. And one thing that we do know about the monarchs is that they prefer to use milkweed that is in the fields rather than on the edges. But if they can't get it there, of course, they'll go where they can get it. But that's been a reduction in their habitat. So that's probably the number one thing that has led to it. And it's not just habitat uh, here, right? Because we know these are migrating butterflies. They're, right. they're one of the only species, uh, if not the only, that migrate in such huge numbers, obviously. Uh, and they overwinter in Mexico. So there's also habitat issues there too, right? There is. And that's multifaceted as well because, you know, we're experiencing climate change. And where they go in Mexico, that habitat is so specific. Um, the trees that they stay in, the oil mill fir trees, only grow at a certain altitude. So not only do the monarchs need a specific habitat for overwintering, the trees that they overwinter in need that same environment. Uh, they kind of help each other, I guess. Uh, the, the trees help the monarchs more than the monarchs help the trees. But uh, what we're seeing is it's warming down there, and that's making the trees more susceptible to insects and disease and the area even though it's part of the unesco uh, world heritage site it's supposed to be protected there is still some illegal logging going there so the thinning of that canopy that protects them is still going on that's been an ongoing battle to try to get that stopped so their habitat down there is is endangered too 
And and we you talk about, you know, we talked about this migration, the massive migration that they take where it's literally millions, used to be billions, but millions of insects migrating um, down through a very specific channel, right, in a specific pathway. And what's amazing to me is that it's actually not the same butterfly that comes up here to Pennsylvania. That's not the same one that flies back down. It's actually the granddaughter, right, the grandchildren of those butterflies that migrate up. Is that right? That is correct. Um, you know, it could even be the great-granddaughter, depending on on weather. Uh, you know, if we have a particularly long season up here where the, in their breeding ground in the summer, you can even have four, sometimes five generations because they go all the way up to Canada. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it takes them a little while to get up there. But, but right now in my area, and I would guess probably in Pittsburgh too, it's, it's peak migration. They started in mid-August in Canada, and they've started to come down. They're, they're migrating, and uh, they will go down all the way to Mexico as, you know, as far as 2,500, 3,000 miles to a very specific spot that they've never been before. I mean, this area down there is very small when you really look at it. It's like about 12 mountaintops that they go to. And, and you're right, they've never been there before. They don't have their parents or even grandparents, you know, to show them the way, yet they find this very same spot. And then they stay down there all winter, and then in the spring, they will fly back. They mate down there, and then they will fly back north until they find milkweed, which is usually Texas, the southern tier of the United States. And the females will lay their eggs there, and then they die. So that final generation that's born from about mid-August through fall lives a lot longer than the previous generations, than their parents and grandparents lived, because they only live about four to six weeks in the summer. But that final generation that makes that migration will live as long as seven months. So the ones that we're seeing now, I know they call that the Methuselah generation, right? Because they are so long-lived. Right. Um, and those right. are the ones that we're actually seeing now in our gardens, you would suppose, that these this is the generation yeah. that lives the longest, that's going to make that epic migration, spend the winter there, do that mating, and then return uh, to Texas and continue with future generations from there. That's really cool. Correct. That's really cool. It is cool. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. <laughs> so, you and you, it, but, d- but scientists, it's because you know, Go ahead. I was just going to say, do the scientists that, that you've spoken with, and I know that there have been many, uh, have they been able to pinpoint the mechanism that the monarchs use to find those mountaintops in Mexico that they have, you know, that their, their grandparents or great-grandparents came from? Do they know how they get there? Well, they don't know everything about it, but, you know, they do know that they take their cues from the sun, the magnetic field uh, of the earth. Uh, they think that they might possibly follow landmarks like mountain ranges and rivers and things like that. But um, the other thing that they do now is that they, in their antenna, they have, just to put it simply, they have little GPS-type units in their antenna that help them to read all these cues so they know to go the right direction. And if you took their antenna off, they would not be able to find their way there. Hmm. So, uh, unfortunately, we only have two minutes left, Kylie, and I think one of the important things I'd like you to share with our listeners is what what can we as citizens and gardeners do to help these monarchs and help overcome some of this massive population decline that we've seen? Well, number one, and everybody's heard this, uh, you know, plant milkweed, because without it, you're not going to have monarchs. But it's also important to plant late-blooming 
nectar plants because they need that for that trip down to Mexico, and they store it. They actually weigh more when they get there than when they left in the north because they store that, that fat that they have get from that nectar to sustain them through the winter. And the better they can do that, then the healthier they'll be for the following year's population to get that off to a good start. And the other thing that we need to do, and it's not just for the monarchs, but for any kind of pollinator or beneficial insect, is we need to think about what we do in our gardens. That, you know, everything that you do, if you use an organic pesticide, it's still a pesticide. Do you really need to use it? Uh, you know, you have consequences to everything that you do in your garden. So um, just avoid that if at all possible, and you're going to help all the beneficial insects and pollinators, not just the monarchs. I completely agree, and you know how that you and I are on the same page about that one for sure. So, Kylie, if people want to learn more about The Monarch, uh, your book, where can they do so? Well, my book is available at independent bookstores, uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and also from me. Uh, on my website, which is ourlittleacre.com. I'm also very active on Facebook, and the book has a lot of resources. I mean, there's a lot of information in the book, too, but if you want to delve further, I've got a lot of resources, uh, places to go where you can do that. And that's at ourlittleacre.com, right? Correct. Wonderful. Well, Kylie, thank you so much for joining us. The book, again, is called The Monarch, Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. I encourage all of our listeners to go out and pick up a copy employ the practices that Kylie recommends, plant the right kind of plants, um, and, and we can all together make a difference in the life of this amazing butterfly. Thank you, Kylie, for joining us this morning. Okay. All right, we'll come right back. Stay with us. We're going to get back to your phone calls, but first let's congratulate Tim from Delmont, winner of that gift certificate from Janoski. Doug and Jessica teach you how to keep it green. The Organic Gardeners. News Radio 1020, KDKA. All right, off to the phones we go, and let's say hello to, who's first? Gaila, how are you? Welcome to the program. How are things in Cheswick this morning? Fine, thank you. Um, I had a question for Jessica. Earlier in the spring, she mentioned about finding, discovering an insect on her boxwood. Mm -hmm. And I, upon inspection of mine, when I broke the leaves open, I saw that little worm Mm -hmm. in there. Mm Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear if you had a remedy for that, because I'm thinking mine hasn't recovered very well. Yes. Maybe I should just replace it, but do I need to remediate the soil or Okay. Anything? So uh, this is called the boxwood leaf miner, and uh, you're very right to say that I described it in spring because it was uh, it, it's a pretty new pest for me, meaning that I haven't seen it in my garden except for the last two years. Uh, and this is a little tiny insect that the eggs are laid uh, inside of the leaf tissue, and they're called a leaf miner because the larvae tunnel and mine out the tissue between the leaf layers. They spend the winter uh, inside of the leaf tissue. They begin to do some pretty aggressive feeding in the spring, and you can actually hear sort of a, a buzzing sound from your plants, sort of like, it almost actually not buzzing. I would describe it as a snap, crackle, pop. Like it's, when you put your ear up to the boxwood plant, it sounds like Rice Krispies um, are inside of each of the leaves, and that's the actual sound of the leaf miner eating. And then they pupate and then emerge as adult flies. So what I suggest that people do is if you did not prune your boxwoods earlier this season, 
uh, or since you have had those boxwood leaf miners, now is a good time to prune because what you're doing when you prune now is you are actually getting rid of the uh, next generation of boxwood leaf miners. So I usually recommend pruning your boxwoods in the fall and then just don't throw those, you know, uh, pruned off stems in the compost pile, throw them out in the garbage because you don't want that insect to overwinter in the compost pile. Uh, And that will get rid of a good bit of next year's generation of these uh, little tiny flies that lay the eggs. So do that for sure. Um, The other thing that you can do that I did in my garden is next spring when they come out as flies, you'll be able to see the day they emerge because it's just a swarm of little orange flies around the boxwood plants. I actually bought yellow sticky cards and you can buy them from local nurseries or even on Amazon and they're literally called yellow sticky cards and I hung them up around my boxwood uh, plants and pest insects have a natural tendency to be attracted to the color yellow and so all these little flies are attracted to the yellow sticky cards they get caught on them and they die before they can lay eggs on the boxwood so that did it I mean I must have caught millions of little boxwood uh, leaf miner flies on my yellow sticky cards this spring so I would recommend that as a step as well Uh, typically they don't kill the plants it has to be a major infestation for three four five years in a row which we usually don't see happen uh, especially if you take these control measures okay so should it Can you prune them pretty severely or just enough to remove? Well, I would never suggest pruning boxwoods pretty severely because they take a long time to bounce back. So I would say at most about a third uh, of the growth. And that's where you're going to see the eggs laid on that nice new growth that occurred right in the spring. Right. Okay. Okay, great. I appreciate your help. You're welcome very much. Have a good day. All right, thank you for the call. All right, here we go. Dollar Bank Instant Access for Jessica from Tom. Love the show. I have read that Joe Pieweed is helpful for monarch and regular butterflies. Do you know if that's true? I have always have milkweed scattered throughout the yard. Excellent. Joe Pieweed is a great uh, late season bloomer that does help those monarchs. It's pretty much done blooming right now, though, so uh, it's not real good as far as providing for these monarchs that are just starting their migration. But other good choices that you can include in the garden include aster. Uh, late season coneflowers, goldenrods are really good, zinnias, cosmos, sedums are great late season bloomers for these butterflies as well. So uh, those are the kinds of plants that you want to provide, those things that are blooming now all the way in through October as well. Uh, And definitely milkweed, as many different kinds of milkweed that you can have in your garden, the the better. Uh, Some of my favorites are world milkweed, Uh, there's a white milkweed, there's swamp milkweed, there's butterfly milkweed, there's purple milkweed. So there's lots of different species out there. The only thing I would warn you with is the common milkweed, which is Asclepius uh, cirrhosa, is one that's very aggressive and can really take over the garden. So if you don't have a big space, I would avoid planting that one. The rest of them are mostly clumpers and they sort of stay put. We'll be back. Doug and Jessica teach you how to keep it green. The Organic Gardeners. This Radio 1020 KDKA. As fall approaches here and uh, we think about the pending winter, I encourage you to follow Kylie Baumley and her advice in regards to the garden and not cleaning up everything out in your landscape. Leave some of those plants go or all of those plants go for the insects to overwinter as well. So even though the monarchs migrate south, most of the butterflies that we have here in Pennsylvania gardens do not leave our gardens for the winter. They spend the winter in the garden either as an adult or a caterpillar uh, or a pupa. So make sure that you leave them some habitat in the landscape. And remember, of course, the organic gardeners always aim to teach you how to create a better place to garden and a safer place to live. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.